good morning, or whatever time of day it is for you right now, and thank you for joining us. I'm guessing that if you're here, you either feel like you're a weirdo, or you deal with a lot of people who seem like weirdos to you. Either way, if you ultimately want to get better at communicating with people who are different than you are, you are in the right place. I'm Jeremy, and I've been called weird many times in my life, and I generally agree. But what I found, in fact, is that everyone's a weirdo. We all communicate very differently, and once we recognize that, we can find ways to make conversations easier, which is going to help make things better at work, with your family and friends, or any social interaction. I'm glad you are taking this journey with us, so let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to How to Talk to Weirdos. We have a very special guest today, Chris Fenning. Chris makes it easier for us to communicate at work. He has simple methods that help experts talk to non-experts, teams talk to executives, and much more. His practical methods are used in organizations like Google and NATO and have appeared in the Harvard Business Review. He's also the author of multiple award-winning books that have been translated into 15 languages. Find out how Chris can help you at chrisfenning.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-F-E-N-N-I-N-G.com. Chris, welcome. Oh, Jeremy, thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm really looking forward to what we're going to talk about. Yeah, me too. You know, I talk a lot about what it's like to talk to people who are different than you. And in looking at what your topics are, it seems like we're pretty well aligned. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you do specifically with, say, NATO and Google? Yes. So I've trained uh, multiple times at both of those organizations. And whether it's those companies or the small fruit and veg supplier down the road that I've also worked with, the methods that I teach are practical situation-based communication frameworks and, and techniques that mostly help somebody who's an expert in one topic or area talk to other people who aren't an expert in that topic or area. It could be a junior developer talking to a senior marketing person. It could be somebody who's a, a fisherman talking to an accountant or vice versa, or executives talking to the rest of the organization. Anytime we've got somebody communicating outside of their team or outside of their field of expertise, there are simple things we can do to make that communication clear and concise. What are an example of one or two things that are the most common and easiest fixes people can do? So the most common problems are not making a topic relevant to the audience and then not making the material relatable. And what I mean by both of those is if it's not relevant to you, you're not going to pay much attention to it. We don't care that much if something isn't particularly relevant to us. We tend to tune out. And if something isn't relatable to us, we struggle to understand it. Try explaining nuclear physics to someone who doesn't know or understand nuclear physics. It's quite difficult to do, unless you can find a way to make that very specific topic relatable to something that those people then understand. I was, well, I was going to ask you, I just downloaded the workbook that you have online. And so my question on that is you say that people tune out. How quickly do they tune out and how long do you have to kind of to catch them <laughs> at very best 20 seconds is how long you get 
In reality, it's, it's shorter than that. There are lots of stats, particularly around social media, where people say you've got to hook somebody in the first few seconds or they scroll on by. That's a very short time for a particular medium, usually on your phone and scrolling through. But in conversation, we still have a short attention span and it's up to 20 seconds. And there's some science behind this. It's not just Chris says, <laughs> it's, it's just what I believe. The I was gonna believe you, but if you can prove <laughs> well, it, well, that's good too. <laughs> the, the, the science behind it comes down to something called short-term memory. And this has got a very particular meaning in neuroscience. It's not the where have I left my keys, uh, I can't remember the name of someone I've just met, short-term memory. It's a very specific process in our brain that when we start receiving information, the first thing our brains do is work out what to do with it. What part of the brain needs to process it? And we have a buffer of 15 to 20 seconds for our brain to work out what to do with the information. Now, very specifically, if I ask you a question, Jeremy, part of your brain would start processing, this is a question. Whereas if I was telling you a funny story and I was trying to entertain you, a different part of your brain would start paying attention. Literally different areas of your brain are working. Until you know why I'm talking to you, your brain doesn't know which part to fire up. And so if we don't make it clear right at the front of our message, particularly at work, we don't make our intention clear. Hi, Jeremy, um, I need your help. I need you to answer a question for me. Versus, hey, Jeremy, funny thing happened yesterday. You're going to love this. If I don't say that, you're not actually paying attention to what I'm saying because your brain's going, what do I do with this? What do I do with it? What do I do with it? What do I do with it? And as soon as it knows what to do with it, then somebody pays more attention. Yeah, I work with a lot of engineers and engineers love to start with the whole background story and how they got to what they need. And then they will eventually ask for what they need. And by that time, the manager is just so frustrated that it's a lot less likely they'll get it. Yes. Yeah. Why are you telling me this? Yeah. And so you said that they have up to 20 seconds, which is not a long time to to get them to pay attention, but then how do you keep them paying attention? Ah, to keep people paying attention, keep things short and keep them relevant. And if you can do the relevant bit, the short tends to come with it. Now, most of our communications training focuses on being short. In fact, some of my books are entirely about how to be brief, how to be concise. But to keep somebody's attention after you've got it, your message needs to be relevant. And relevance can be easily defined in something we can all understand. To make a message relevant, show how it impacts them. Them being the person that you're talking to. Jeremy, if I want to make it relevant to you, I need to talk about my topic, not from my perspective, but how does this impact you and the things that you care about? Because if, I bet you if I tell you something that's going to impact you or something you care a lot about, you're going to pay attention. It, yeah, it is something that I tell people all the time. In your head, always think, so what? And assume the other person is thinking, so what? And answer that. Answer the question, so what? Yes. Yes. Uh, can, can I give a really specific example? Please. And we'll, we'll go with, um, it could be engineering software, but a very technical topic. This is true for whether it's finance, fishing, engineering, wherever. But let's say I was a, a software developer 
and I was talking to my boss about a problem I just discovered. If I want it to be relevant, I don't say there is this problem with this system and it's causing this in the back end and here's what I'm going to do about it. That's not relevancy. It's all fact. It might all be important, but it's not relevant and it's not showing impact. What I should say instead is, hey boss, I found a bug. Our software is going to stop working tomorrow and customers can't buy our product. My boss is gonna care about that. Yes. Not the detail, but the outcome. And surgeons do this well. Heart surgeons, when they're talking to somebody who's come in and they've, they've had a heart attack, they don't talk about the details of exactly what happened in the heart, or hopefully they don't. The good ones don't. What they do is they say, if you don't change your lifestyle, you'll die. That is impact to the patient, impact to them. And that's how you can show up. Yeah, it takes them a while to figure out how to do that well. You said the good ones communicate that way. Not all of them do. True. And some, <laughs> some of them, it takes a while. And I should probably cover that. Caveat that, the, the ones that are good at communicating, there are fantastic heart surgeons who can't communicate very well, but I would love for them to work on me right. if I needed that. So there's, uh, you know, depending on what's more important to you at the time, getting a fixed heart <laughs> or a clear message. Yeah, you I don't care about liking my surgeon. I just want him to save my life. <laughs> you know, one of the problems with being concise is that it gets trained out of us in school, I think. At least for me, I have always been pretty concise and when I would write papers, they were never long enough. And the teachers would always want me to write more. And so I would have to kind of find filler just to get to the five pages or whatever it was when I could have said it in three pages, but they made me go longer. Is that something that you've seen? Yes, count. I remember counting the words, but this was, this was back when we did things by hand. We weren't writing everything on the, on the computer. Word count in Word was an absolute saver when that came along. But literally counting the words and saying, wow, I need to get to 1500 and I'm on 938. Oh, where can I go and add something? Now, what I believe our teachers wanted from us was to further explore our particular perspective or argument, to find extra supporting evidence, to be able to, um, you know, to go into to more depth in an appropriate way, maybe have five points instead of two, and you'd be concise on the five. What actually happens is exactly what you described. I do this, I've seen, I did this, I see other people doing this and hear about it with, with the kids at school. Oh, I have to find something to put in. Maybe I can copy this paragraph and quote it. And so just padding out. So you're right, we do get taught to be long. And I think the failing there is not that writing a 1500 word essay is a bad thing, it's that we don't understand what should be in that 1500 word essay and how it can all be valuable. Right. And, you know, in addition to adding words, another thing that gets taught to technical people, especially, is that they have to explain how they got to an answer. And I'm doing a talk to a bunch of engineers at UMass. And one of the things, you know, the head of the department told me was that we make them prove that they know all the steps to get to the final answer. And if they don't show all the steps, they lose points for it. And then when they get into the corporate world, that's not something the manager wants to see all that detail. Of. No, they want to have confidence that you've got it. And right. if asked, 
you need to be able to provide it. But that's the key. It's have it ready if you are asked. And I think you're, I think you're absolutely right that in education, we, we teach by experience and exposure one way of doing things and we get into the corporate world and nope, it's totally different. People want three lines, succinct, impact focused, tell me what you're gonna do about it and then move on. Yeah, and then just make sure that you have the answers <laughs> in your back yes. pocket if they get asked. Yeah, I think there's so a problem the, at work as well where, if, I'm sorry, I, I think I spoke over you there. No, you're probably gonna answer the question I was just about to ask, so go ahead. Oh, okay, we'll, we'll test this theory. We're, at work, we, we reinforce that message that comes from university or, or learning environment of show all the steps. And there are some occasions where it gets reinforced when preparing for those, those large communication moments, presentations, the meeting with the big boss, with the client, etc., where there are days of pouring over hundreds of slides that make sure we're fully prepared and have all of the answers and absolutely everything. And there's a, there's a, a misconception that that needs to be done so that we can present all that information to the end user. Whereas actually, you need to have confidence that you've got all that information if you're asked for it. It's not about presenting everything, it's about presenting that concise summary that is relevant, that includes relatable information, is impact-focused. And then if you're asked, you can say, yes, and we have last month's error stats or next month's forecast or whatever it happens to be. But we train people to have all of that detail with the misconception that it's going to be presented. And it shouldn't be, <laughs> ever. When I'm doing a presentation, I will practice it and I know I have it when I can go off script as much as needed. If I'm on slide two and they ask me about slide 10, if I can bounce around, I know I've got the material and if we never get to something, it's fine. But if you know it that well, you're right. You can go to any part of it at any time. Yes, yes, that's, and being able to jump around is fantastic. I, I challenge you, you being the listeners and you yourself, Jeremy, is could you do that without any slides for your initial presentation? And here's, here's what that looks like. You have half an hour or one hour with the big boss to talk about something and you're the expert giving that presentation. Deliver your three minutes, two to three minute update, verbally, maybe with a couple of supporting diagrams, only if needed, and then have 55 to 57 minutes of conversation that dips into the detail if it's needed. How would you feel doing that? If I understood everything very well, I would feel great about it. If I wasn't fully prepared, then I would feel the need to have a script for the whole time. For the whole hour? Well, you know, the less prepared I am, the more of a more script I want. The more prepared I am, the more I can go off the cuff and just talk about it. That's a really, really interesting observation. I've never heard it described that way, but I think you've just come up with how to, how to describe why people want to fill the hour with presentation and leave five or 10 minutes for questions. And it's a confidence piece. If I'm delivering, I feel confident in the material I'm presenting. Whereas if I only do a short bit, they could ask me anything and that's, that's terrifying. Right. What if I don't know the answer? So some of it's preparation, some of it is also personality type. 
some people like to have every single step planned and they want to have, you know, if this happens, this happens and they want all of it kind of written out and prepped. And some people are more willing to just go in the moment and see what happens. So some of it is how well you know it. Some of it is personality. Mm. There's a problem with the without approach. And I've, I spent a lot of my career doing that exactly that. So this is not an accusation. This is a recognition that we all have. The, the problem is that mentality is all about us, the speaker, and not in the slightest bit about them, the audience. And so for us to have a feeling of comfort and control, we want to control every piece of the message that goes across. But if the audience doesn't care about the thing we're talking about, or they're particularly interested in only one part of it and we've moved on, we lose the audience, we frustrate them, and we damage our reputation. The best way to have an engaging, positive outcome with a client, with a, with a manager, with whomever, is to present your message and ask what they want to hear about and let them dictate where the conversation goes as long as you've got the, the important things that they need to know about, which is usually the impact-focused pieces. If we've got that across, ask them, would you like to go into more detail on any of these? Do you have any particular questions? What else would you like to hear about? And then when they ask a question, you can guarantee your answer is something they care about and you'll have their attention, you'll have their interest, and it won't just be a presentation, it'll be a conversation. For every important meeting that I go to, I refuse to participate if there's no agenda. And if the overall meeting doesn't have an agenda, then I'll run the meeting and I'll have an agenda. And I'll always let people know ahead of time. I don't like hidden agendas, I'll say, I'll, uh, you know, if I'm having a hour-long meeting with a very important client, I'll say, here are the things I plan on talking about. Are these of interest to you? And is there anything that you would like to talk about instead? And sometimes oh, the yes. agenda I wrote goes right out the window and because none of it matters and we just talk about, you know, the X factor. Yes. It, oh, that's such a great example of you, you make it clear the things you want to talk about and then ask them what's important to them. And depending on the audience, they may have the right to choose that. If the client says this is the most important thing, you better talk about better yeah. talk about that. <laughs> Otherwise, you get to the end of the hour and they say, yeah, that's all, that's all great, but you haven't addressed any of my concerns. What a failed communication situation, particularly when it's that client relationship. One, one caveat on that, though, is if there's something that the client needs to know, tell them that they need to know it. They can choose the order to talk about, but let them know there's something they need to know about, particularly if they're not aware of it already. And then ask. <laughs> I love that, Jeffrey. Just ask them, what do you want to talk about? And your whole agenda can go out of the window and it's totally fine. Yeah. Again, as long as you are prepared enough to know, <laughs> to know how to answer what they want to talk about. Yes. But if you don't, what, in, that, in that situation, Jeremy, what would you say when you go in there and the client says, oh, but I want to talk about this other thing. What if you didn't, weren't prepared for that at all? What would you say? You know, sometimes you just have to reschedule. And, or you'd say, you know, here are the things that we know enough to have a conversation about. This one we can't do right now. So let's both do whatever research we need to do and then talk about it again in whatever other time. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. And it's fine to do that. It's one of the scariest things 
that I did in, early in my career was having those moments of deer in the headlight. Oh, I don't, well, oh, they've asked me something I don't know, whether it's a small question or an entire topic. And one of the, one of many mistakes that I made, but one of the big mistakes was to try and blag it or wing it. And there is no upside in doing that. For anybody listening to this and thinking, well, if, if I get asked a question I don't know, I should appear confident and, and answer it and, and work through it. Yes, you should appear confident. When you say the words, I don't have an answer for that right now, can I please get back to you? Confidently say that. Yep. Do not fill in, make stuff up, wing it. I really embarrassed myself and my company as a, as a junior developer, a designer at the time, junior designer at a, a um, defense engineering company, just winging it. And I made statements that I believed were true and were completely wrong. Damaged my credibility, damaged my department's credibility, damaged the company's credibility. In a small way, my boss pretty quickly fixed it uh, with the client. But my personal credibility was, was badly damaged because I thought I could wing it. And what I should have said is, I, I don't have that answer right now. Can I find out and come back to you tomorrow? So say what you're going to do, when you're going to do it, ask them if that's okay, and then move on. I love that. And you know, what I've found is people who are willing to admit they don't know something actually appear more confident than people who just try to wing it. Yeah, it's credibility. It, it will, it'll, it'll catch up with you at some point. Yeah, you might get lucky a little bit, but just own it. Own it that you don't know the answer. We can't know everything. We're not all chat GPT or the, the <laughs> accurate version of it going forward. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure that knows everything. Maybe that's the analogy. ChatGPT will confidently do it. When I was younger, I had a, a screensaver that I wrote lean into it. And it was about that very situation where when someone asks you a question, you're not sure of the answer. Don't lean back and look terrified, but mm. lean into it and say, oh, I don't know. And yeah, if that, you are confident in the, oh, I don't know, that's a great question. Let's explore that. Then it's all, all going to be fine. Yeah, I love that. It's leading. Mm, what a great, what a great question. Mm, yeah, I have no idea what the answer is, but really good question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're on the same team now to find out the answer. <laughs> Does that work in podcasts? If you ask me something I don't know, can I just lean in and, go, and confidently yeah, say, or, yeah. I have no idea. You know, there's so many things I don't know that you just have to run with it. So Chris, I just recently downloaded your workbook, um, which is on your website. Can you tell me it's it's a pretty sizable workbook, so it, it's not just a couple pages. It's pretty in-depth. Can you tell me a little bit about how people use that workbook and what it would be good for? Yes, yes, absolutely. So when, when you hear about workbooks, often you think it's just a lot of lined pages and blank space. This workbook is an accompanying book to go with the first minute, which is the primary book. And the workbook, you can use it standalone, and it is a little bit of teaching and then some practical activities to help you apply the stuff that you've learned. And what I didn't want is somebody to have to have both books open. So you don't have to have the first minute open while you're working through the, note, the workbook. What you can do is you can pick a particular um, method, tool or situation that you want to improve relating to starting a message clearly, because everything in the first minute is about getting the first minute right and starting that first minute clearly. You can work through different um, 
frameworks, formulas, and apply them to your work. So for example, Jeremy, if you were going to have an important meeting with a client and you weren't quite sure how, uh, on a difficult topic, you were going to talk to them about a problem that you were facing in some work you're doing together, you weren't quite sure how to start that conversation. What would you actually say? How would you structure it out? There are activities in that workbook where it goes through a little bit of theory, gives you a method and a framework to use, shows you an example of how to do it, and then walks you through step by step, applying it in your situation, and then gives you some opportunities to do that with other situations forward-looking in your work. So it's taking real situations from your work and applying these methods to them. And then you'd have the start of your conversation ready, and you can take that with you uh, in note form or scripted, whatever is your particular style, and you've got a confident beginning to that difficult conversation. That sounds so useful. Who is that good for? Is it good for executives talking to junior people or vice versa, or is it for anyone in particular? It's for anyone, and that makes it sound really generic, but the reason I'm confident saying it's for anyone is when I teach at the uh, local university near here, it's for students. And when I work with C-suite groups at major international corporations, it's for the executives as well. And they've all used it. Everybody's grumbled a little bit because it's homework. It's homework for adults. And so you've got to want to be putting in the time and the effort. And I may have just done it a disservice there by calling it homework. It's not boring right out a hundred times. It's deliberately not that. But it's, um, it's a way to practically use what you've learned to help you. So you've got to want to apply it. Otherwise, it's just going to become um, a coaster on your desk and get nice coffee stains on it. But it's really for any job and any situation because the first minute of any communication, whether it's good news or bad news or celebrations or looking to solve a problem, you still have to deliver very specific things in that first minute for your audience to be able to understand you and pay attention. You know, this podcast is called How to Talk to Weirdos, and a lot of it is about business, but it's about communicating with people who just think and communicate differently than you do, so it also applies in personal life. Um, you know, if I'm a total introvert, I've got friends who are as extroverted as can be, and sometimes we need to do some translation so we understand each other. Do people ever use this in their personal conversations? They do. Now, Right at the beginning, I think it's even on page one of the first minute, I say this is not for relationships. I make it very clear that the book is specifically for work. And that's because I'm not qualified to help people with relationships and, and outside of outside of work. I, I cope with my own just about. Or you check with my wife and see whether that's true. But um, I made it for work situations. However, I regularly every week or two get somebody contacting me telling me how it's helping them in a different situation and there are a few that stand out quite significantly one is a, a group a, a, a company that helps parents communicate with children with learning disabilities or children that are going through very troubled times they're getting into the um, sort of the legal system and so on and i i am not qualified in that space at all but what, uh, what these people told me was that the frameworks gave the adults a mechanism to structure their thoughts by taking the emotion out of it. So they didn't get angry, they got to focus on the facts and organize their thoughts, which helped them have more constructive conversations with the children. Not planned at all as a purpose for the book, but being used for, for a situation that's incredibly beneficial for the people involved. 
And I have, I have half a dozen stories like this where people are using it in these very varied non-work situations. How rewarding that must be. It's, it was, I, I was bowled over, absolutely bowled over by it. And this, is, I think, is a great example, no matter what the topic is. Whomever you have on this show, providing any advice at all for, for your listeners, for anyone listening to this, if you find a use for a tool or a method or a mechanism, if you find a use for it outside of its directly intended purpose, great. If it's beneficial to you and others, don't let that stop you. There are lots of ways we can use tools beyond what they're strictly prescribed for. like it. So, Chris, we are getting close to the end here, but are there any questions? I assume people read your book and then they have questions that they ask you often. Are there any that you wish they would ask that no one thinks to that you think is important? Hmm. One of the reasons I wrote the book was a frustration with a gap in communications training. It was a question that I had that I wished there was an answer for. So there's a lot of information about public speaking and body language and active listening, all of which are great. Not a lot available about how to be clear and concise. And the question, I was the annoying kid in the, in the comms classes putting my hand up and saying, but how do you do it? And the teachers would say, well, you should be clear and concise. That's how to be a good communicator. But how? The engineering, we wanted the, the, the ABC, the one, two, three of it. And so I was the one asking the question and the book wasn't there, which then meant I wrote the book. So I haven't Love got it. questions that I, I wish people would ask about it or, but there are plenty of other books that I'm writing to, ans to answer the qu other questions that I get during the trainings. So perhaps it's in those. Yeah, no, that's, that was a great answer. The fact that that was always something you thought was so important and wasn't getting talked about. So thank you. Thank you for writing the book because I agree. It's very important. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. <laughs> As we wrap up, I finish with three questions. And the first one is, where is a place you have loved to travel to? And 1B is, where would you like to go? I struggle. I struggle with one these one-place questions because there are so many. So, Norway. Norway is the place that I've been to that I would go back to again in a heartbeat. I've been there in the winter and in the summer and it's magical in both situations. And that is a place I would go back to many, many times. I've never uh, been, but Finland is one of my favorite places in the world. And I've also been there in the middle of summer and the middle of winter, very different experience, but I love it. <laughs> very. <laughs> <laughs> Finland is, is magical. My wife and I went, we spent a week at, in new, a new year up inside the Arctic Circle in, in oh, wow. Finland. And it was, yes, chilly. Yeah, a bit. Yeah. So cold, you almost can't feel it. It's weird. Oh, yes. Yeah. And you asked about somewhere that I would like to go to. And it's a very large area. I'd love to go to South America. And for lots of reasons, I'd love to go to the Amazon. I'd love to go to Rio. I'd love to go to the border between Argentina and Brazil, where the amazing waterfalls are. Go and see the, um, uh, the tundra in Patagonia and then the mountains in Peru. Just be a phenomenal I, I just spend take a couple of years off work and go and travel around uh, South America would be lovely. You can write your books while traveling. It's good. Go ahead and do it. I can. It's harder to do the school run to take my daughter to school every day, but we'd work something out. Yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> 
who is a person who you think is an excellent communicator and it can be a public figure or just someone in your personal life? May I, may I give two very short answers? Yep. One is my daughter. She's six and she's just started experimenting with puns and wordplay and jokes. And so I love that part of her communication development. And I think kids are fantastic communicators if we as parents pay attention to not just the words they say, but pay attention to, to their body language, to their tone, to the emotions that are behind them, and not just the words. They can tell us an incredible amount about how to communicate when you don't have the right words. I think kids are fantastic for that. They sound um, like that point. And then the second answer is someone that your listeners can follow. Hopefully you won't be following my family around, um, but Vin Yang. Um, it's pronounced Vin Yang, but his last name is spelt G-I-A-N-G. And he lives in Boston. He's a public speaking um, expert, fantastic. His content is on point, it's entertaining, and it's valuable. Wonderful, thank you. And last question is, what is one piece of advice on communication that you'd give to anyone? Focus on the fundamentals. All the flashier stuff like being up on stage and uh, great body language, that comes after you've got the fundamentals of being able to understand someone else's perspective, being concise, getting to the point, being able to do something in three lines instead of 25 lines. If you can get those fundamentals right, everything else is going to be easier because you will have more confidence in what you're saying. Excellent, build the base. All right, Chris, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on here. Can you remind the audience of where they can find out more about you? Absolutely. My social hangout is on LinkedIn. Come and find me and connect with me. I answer every question that I get. And you can find me at chrisfenning.com. That's my website. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Chris. I learned a lot. I hope everybody else did as well. And we will uh, look forward to reading your book. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to How to Talk to Weirdos. You've been listening to me for a while now, and I want to listen to you. Can you do me a favor and go to my LinkedIn page at Jeremy P. Doran and tell me your story about a communication lesson you've learned? I'll share in a future episode, and I may even have you on the show. Until next week, have fun talking to weirdos.